You're listening to the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to this special bonus edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 22nd day of September 2010. And as you may have noticed, for those of you keeping track at home, this is episode number 147, in which I present the audio of a documentary entitled 77 Seeds of Deconstruction. Now, this, as I have mentioned, is a bonus edition of the Corbett Report podcast. Obviously, we usually put out new episodes on Sundays, but at least for the next few weeks and for the foreseeable future, I'm going to attempt to put out an, a bonus episode each week, which will feature the audio of a documentary, which I have found valuable. And this week, we're going to be featuring 77 Seeds of Deconstruction, a brand new documentary from Tom Secker, who some of you might remember very recently, I had the chance to interview about the phony Al Qaeda terror threat. And I was very impressed by his recent 7-7 documentary, so I am now presenting to you the audio. Uh, again, this is available on YouTube and on other video sharing sites, and please check the documentation for this bonus episode to find a link to the video itself. But once again, a lot of video documentaries translate quite well into audio documentaries, so I've just taken the audio and we'll dish that out to you right now. Tom Secker's work can be found at howardbealsnewshour.blogspot.com. And again, there will be a link to that in the documentation. And I suggest that people check out my recent interview with Tom Secker because it was quite fascinating and went into quite a great degree of detail about the phony terror threats that we're being presented with. And I think Seven Seven Seeds of De Deconstruction goes even further into that. And as part of these bonus episodes where I'm presenting the audio of various documentaries, I will also be attempting to interview each filmmaker to talk a little bit about the documentary. So look for an interview with Tom Secker about this documentary in particular, and 7-7 uh, in particular, in the very near future. So keep your eye on the interviews tab for that. But right now, without further ado, let's get straight into the documentary. I present to you untouched and unaltered the audio of the great new 7-7 documentary, 7-7 Seeds of Deconstruction. Any second now, in fact, here he is. He's walking out. Cue the Prime Minister. You can see he's in a, a great mood as he approaches the podium. He's, everybody's clapping and applauding. He's shaking hands. One of the last things Tony Blair did before his long overdue resignation was to deny for a third time the need for an independent public inquiry into what happened on July 7th, 2005. Blair initially said that any such inquiry would be a ludicrous diversion from the struggle against terrorism. Some months later, he would go on to say, I do accept that people want to know exactly what happened. We will make sure that they do. In spite of this promise, no inquiry was forthcoming. Among other excuses, we've been told that it would be too expensive to publicly investigate the deaths of 56 people. Despite numerous calls from survivors, the families of victims, and truth campaigners, the government has essentially refused to expand on the story it has already told. Eventually, Blair said that the inquiry was being held back because it would undermine the security services. This statement is effectively an admission that they've got something to hide. I, I have ruled out having another proper and in, independent inquiry. 
What I object to about this is the idea that somehow there has been some attempt not to provide the truth up to now. I don't believe for a single instant that the Intelligence and Security Committee did not get to the truth. But what we will do is undermine support for our security services. I'm simply not prepared to do it. And we've had nearly four years now of no answers to lots of very important questions. The government have stonewalled everything. It's been, it's been very, very difficult and continues to be very, very difficult. Accounts of what happened on July 7th are contrasting and varied, and nothing we've been officially told makes any sense. Every aspect of the government's narrative of what happened and who was responsible is dubious. Much of it is contradicted by other sources, eyewitnesses, and reports in the mainstream media. These contradictions, and the questions that arise from them, have led some to believe that the four British Muslim men allegedly responsible may have themselves been victims of a much larger conspiracy. A Channel 4 News survey of 500 British Muslims carried out by NOP has found that nearly a quarter do not believe the four men identified as the London bombers were responsible for the attacks. And a similar number say the government or the security services were involved. Nearly six in ten of those polled believe the government has not told the whole truth about the July the 7th bombings. And more than half say the intelligence services have made up evidence in order to convict terrorist suspects. Do you think that the government has told the whole truth about the 7-7 bombings? Absolutely not. I don't think them four guys really, they could have just been like passengers on the train and the buses. I think that the government, they were looking for people to blame. It was convenient. While Channel 4's poll did not show this, there is also a significant minority of non-Muslims who doubt the government's story of 7-7. Opinions range from those who believe the government is merely withholding evidence and information to those that explicitly deny that the four alleged bombers were responsible and those who affirm or suspect that it was some kind of inside job. The only three people ever to have been prosecuted in connection with 7-7 were found not guilty and tensions have exacerbated between those in the mainstream advancing the official version of events and those who are sceptical or advance other versions. Do you know what I'm saying? I know you. We're being victimised. Listen, it's a, it's, it, it is, it is, it's propaganda. Therefore, and the people who were behind the 7-7 bombings, who I believe personally, it wasn't nothing to do with them lads. Oh, nothing whatsoever. On. Nah, it's a lot of bollocks, man. It's a lot of bollocks. After the trial of the three alleged co-conspirators, the ISC published a second report, this one seeking to refute what they call other allegations, more commonly known as legitimate questions and conspiracy theories. The report says, We caution against believing all that is said or reported, particularly when it is not supported by solid evidence. But the government's version is not supported by solid evidence, and yet is widely and uncritically repeated by the major media. What is supported by solid evidence is that history has shown that Western governments have made a consistent policy of engaging in covert operations, including false flag terrorist attacks. Yesterday's conspiracy theories are today's declassified history. In this context, it is not only our right but our responsibility to ask serious questions about who carried out terrorist attacks and who benefited from them. The war on terror could not operate, either domestically or globally, without an enemy. Four homegrown British suicide bombers fits the bill perfectly. Though how the authorities came to the conclusion that these were the people responsible is not an easy question to answer. 
This film will outline some of the history of Western-backed covert operations. As a means to understanding the contradictions in different versions of what happened on July 7th, as well as providing context to official statements, though it will not advance any particular theory as to what really happened. In November 1954, newly elected President of Guatemala, Castillo Armas, was given a ticker tape parade in New York City and awarded honorary degrees by American universities. Armas had come to power in a coup that summer, supposedly an insurrection against the communist president, Jacobo Arbenz. In 1955, Vice President Richard Nixon flew into Guatemala to meet with Armas. As part of an elaborate PR campaign, they held a press conference where they portrayed Armas as a popular revolutionary and Arbenz as a Soviet puppet. This is the first time in the history of the world that the communist government has been overthrown by the people. And for that, we congratulate you and the people of Guatemala for the support they have given. In other words, the Arbenz regime uh, was not a Guatemalan government. Uh, it was a foreign government controlled by foreigners. But none of this was true. Arbenz was a popular president, elected on a platform of reforming the land ownership to help the largely peasant population of Guatemala. Armas was a colonel in the Guatemalan military, recruited by the CIA to lead the coup attempt. Though he was elected after the coup was successful, he was the only candidate. and his small army did not lead an internal revolution, but was financed and trained by the CIA. Arbenz's reforms had given land thousands of peasants, but had taken it from the American United Fruit Company. United Fruit not only owned vast tracts of land in Guatemala, but also the rail network and the major port. When Arbenz moved to break United Fruit's monopoly, it did not take them long to organize a plot against him. The company appealed to the State Department and others for help, and found many willing volunteers. Various members of United States foreign policy institutions were involved with United Fruit, as stockholders, on the company's board of directors, or providing legal counsel for the firm. This included Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, his brother, CIA Director Alan Dulles, and President Eisenhower's personal secretary was married to United Fruit's Chief of Public Relations. CIA-produced radio broadcasts convinced the Guatemalan people that Arbenz was a traitor who had to be overthrown, and convinced Arbenz that the small army led by Armas was in fact much larger. When the small army made their move, Arbenz resigned and fled the country, giving up almost without a fight. Propaganda takes the place of armed combat, takes the place of bloodletting. You don't need to do it. If your enemy will surrender, if he's rendered incapable of independent action, then that's what you want. Several years later, Guatemala would itself become the staging base for a nearly identical CIA operation, this time against Fidel Castro. In 1959, five years after the CIA overthrew Arbenz, Castro came to power. 
From his stronghold in the wild Sierra Maestre Mountains, Cuba's Fidel Castro emerged triumphant after two years of guerrilla warfare against the Batista regime. As he had with Armas, Richard Nixon met with the new leader, though there would be a radically different outcome. When Castro visited Washington in 1959, he met with the vice president. Years later, in a CBS Reports interview with Bill Moyers, Castro recalled that encounter with Nixon. To listen to me with attention, I think that with indulgence, and then we said goodbye. Later on, I found out that immediately after our interview was over, Nixon sent a memorandum to Eisenhower telling him that I was a communist and that I had to be eliminated. A plan was developed whereby the CIA would train a small army in Guatemala. Using boats provided by the United Fruit Company, the army would then invade Cuba and overthrow Castro. In the presidential election campaign, Kennedy was in favor of helping the Cuban exiles, but Nixon was publicly opposed to the plan. We were to follow that recommendation, that we would lose all of our friends in Latin America, we would probably be condemned in the United Nations, and we would not accomplish our objective. In later interviews, Nixon would recall a quite different version of events. The plans to support a, the training of Cuban refugees uh, so that they could eventually return to their homeland and free that country of dictatorial rule began under President Eisenhower's administration. I was a strong supporter of those plans. After the election, Kennedy was not deterred from the plan to invade Cuba with a covert army. I have been elected, and uh, therefore I'm going to do my best to implement those views. Even as the president-elect speaks, in Guatemala, the force that he has called for in his campaign the force that Nixon has denied exists, that Eisenhower has created, that Castro has denounced, is getting trained and ready. But Kennedy was insistent that only the CIA-trained exiles would fight, and not the U.S. military. Well, first I want to say that there will not be under any conditions be an intervention in Cuba by United States Armed Forces. This did not stop Kennedy greenlighting an operation using U.S. aircraft, though the CIA and other officials would claim the planes were Cuban. Havana, dawn, Saturday, April 15. B-26 bombers of the Cuban Exile Air Force attacked Castro's airfield. When the Cubans complained to the U.N. about the attack, the Americans denied that it had originated with them. No United States personnel participate. No United States government airplanes of any kind participate. These two planes, to the best of our knowledge, were Castro's own Air Force planes, and according to the pilot, pilots, they took off from Castro's own Air Force fields. I have here a picture of one of these planes, it has the markings of the Castro Air Force right on the tail, which everyone can see for himself. One of the planes is at a Miami airfield. It is identified as a B-26 attached to the exiled Cuban brigade. Castro's B-26s have no nose guns. The pilot is identified from a newspaper picture as a member of the brigade. Castro has been dealt a serious blow. But his entire air force has not been destroyed. The crucial fact is 
three jet trainers are uncut. A United States Naval Task Force puts to sea for Caribbean maneuvers scheduled for the next week. United States Marines are at sea in transports to take part in the maneuvers. Dawn, Monday, April 17th, Bay of Pigs, Cuba. You are looking at film shot on the invasion beach by German and Cuban cameras. In the first hours, the brigade pushes inland. Castro has not yet been able to bring up his tanks and heavy guns. The first communique of the brigade, issued by Madison Avenue Public Relations Office, reports satisfactory progress. Over the beach are 12 B-26s providing air cover. Shortly after dawn, they are attacked by the three Castro jets that survived Saturday's airstrike. Five of them are shot down. The brigade's two supply ships and its communications ship are sunk. Within a few minutes, the men on the beach have lost their air cover and their supplies. Now, Castro can bring up his tanks without fear of air attack. And he can bring up thousands of his milicianos. There is no uprising, there is no sabotage, there is no help from the underground for the brigade. They are 1,500 against thousands. The beach they are on is hemmed in by swamp. They have no air cover. They are running short of ammunition. How can they win? At 3.45 p.m. Wednesday, April 19th, resistance ends. All those who are not killed are taken prisoner. Less than 72 hours, Castro has destroyed the brigade. The American plan, financed, trained, and backed invasion of Cuba, is now a total failure. In the aftermath of the invasion, the Americans could do nothing in the face of international criticism and celebrations by Castro's supporters. There was no denying that the CIA's army of mainly middle-class Cuban refugees had been thoroughly humiliated. To have tried and succeeded would have been bad enough, but to have tried and failed is almost unforgivable. That's what many Frenchmen are saying. A Senate committee this week figured the invasion cost at $45 million for the 1,500-man force. An administration group thinks the Central Intelligence Agency ignored Marine Corps doctrine on amphibious operations. Marine Commandant General David Shoup was never even consulted. Es un símbolo para todos los pueblos oprimidos. Playa Girón es la primera derrota del imperialismo en América Latina. Pero también es una de las primeras derrotas del imperialismo en escala mundial. On April 21st, Kennedy gave a press conference at which he took full responsibility for the failure at the Bay of Pigs. I know that many of you have further questions about Cuba. Privately, Kennedy thought that the CIA had betrayed him, so he fired Alan Dulles, Richard Bissell, and General Charles Cabell, all career intelligence men since World War II. Dulles would go on to serve on the Warren Commission, investigating Kennedy's assassination. Responsibility for covert action against Cuba was turned over to the Pentagon. The new project was called Operation Mongoose.
declassified documents show that Mongoose was not just an operation to kill Castro, but involved a series of schemes designed to cause instability in Cuba, to provoke them into attacking, or to make them look like the aggressors. One such plan, called Operation Good Times, suggested forging a picture of Castro next to beautiful women, gorging themselves on expensive food. The picture would then be widely distributed in Cuba, alongside the caption, My ration is different. Another plan, called Operation Breakup, aimed to cause aircraft vehicle and boat accidents in Cuba by smuggling corrosive materials on board. The early years of the space race were fraught with accidents and mistakes. To the directors of Operation Mongoose, however, this was just another opportunity. They came up with Operation Dirty Trick, which said that if anything went wrong with the flight intended to make John Glenn the first American to orbit the Earth, that the Cubans would be blamed, and that evidence would be manufactured proving electronic interference on the orders of Castro. Fortunately for John Glenn, and for Cuba, the mission was a success. The directors of Operation Mongoose would surpass all this with a plan to stage a false flag attack on Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, where the Americans had a naval base. The plan was originally codenamed Bingo, but became Operation Northwards. Northwards was the brainchild of General Lyman Lemnitzer, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a notorious anti-communist. In March 1962, Lemnitzer forwarded a memo to Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. It was a plan requested by the Chief of Operations for the Cuba Project, Ed Lansdale, and explained how a staged attack could provide justification for a U.S. military intervention in Cuba. The memo called for using friendly Cubans to attack the naval base, giving the appearance of hostile Cuban forces. A variation on this involved blowing up a US ship in the harbour. Phony rescue operations would be conducted to evacuate a non-existent crew, and ultimately funerals would be held for mock victims. The memo states that casualty lists in US newspapers would cause a helpful wave of national indignation. A further suggestion was to create a communist Cuban terror campaign in Miami, in other Florida cities, and even in Washington. Again, evidence would be prepared substantiating Cuban involvement. Most elaborate of all was the plan that they could duplicate a civil registered aircraft, converting the original into a drone. The duplicate would then be loaded with passengers with assumed identities. The two planes would take off and rendezvous south of Florida. The duplicate would then return and land at Eglin Air Force Base, its passengers safe. The drone would then fly over Cuba and transmit a distress signal saying that it was under attack by Cuban fighters. The destruction of the drone would be triggered by radio signal. Ultimately, Kennedy would reject the plan, finding no greater joy with the Pentagon than he had with the CIA. 
the Americans never went to war with Cuba, and Castro remained in power for decades. However, the whole episode shows a willingness in Western military and intelligence services to engage in covert action, deception, propaganda, and even terrorism. This willingness of governments to sacrifice even the lives of their own citizens would become ever more evident over the following decades. Gladio, così come è stata definita, individuata, descritta oggi, è una componente di quelle che ho sempre chiamato strutture parallele. C'è un esercito invisibile, non predisposto per una battaglia, una guerra esterna contro un ipotetico invasore, ma addestrato ad operare all'interno contro quello che in tutti gli ambienti militari è stato sempre definito una quinta colonna dell'Unione Sovietica, il Partito Comunista e le forze di estrema sinistra del suo collegato. That was uh, the time when the Second World War was over. Europe was devastated, and most uh, strategists in Europe actually feared an occupation uh, of Western Europe by the communists uh, in the years to come. So uh, they thought we must prepare something like a guerrilla network, which could then be operated in case of an invasion. So the primary thinking for for creating such secret units was we must have a guerrilla unit ready in case of occupation. This structure parallel hanno impiegato elementi dell'estrema destra per un motivo molto semplice è una in corso una battaglia anticomunista nel 1945 non è, fi è finita la seconda guerra mondiale ed è iniziata la terza guerra mondiale Now international terrorism coming from the Soviet Union wasn't merely a constructive ideology it wasn't just projected and you know this is a threat this is something we have to be scared of it was also a construct of real life covert operations And it is absolutely crucial to understand. Through to the late 1980s, a highly secretive subsections of different intelligence services, British, American, and Western European, participated in a very sophisticated NATO-backed operation to engineer terrorist attacks inside Western Europe, which could then be blamed on the Soviet Union. Now, this operation originated from within MI6 and the CIA. In fact, Winston Churchill gave the original order to set up what was called the Secret Stay Behind Network. And the idea was to galvanize public opinion against left-wing policies and parties when it was considered that it was, they were getting too popular. And the reason I bring this up is because if you're looking at... A lot of people talk about the side of false flag terrorism. And if you use the term false flag terrorism in mainstream media, you immediately get laughed out of the room as a kook, a deluded fantasist. But what does false flag terrorism mean? False flag terrorism is when you carry out a terrorist attack and you wave a flag which is not your own. That's what a covert operation is about. A covert operation is precisely to carry out an operation where you don't have to take responsibility. Where responsibility can be pinned on another party and no one can trace it back to the CIA. That's what it's about. So this is classic false flag terrorism, and it's documented by historical scholarship. Go back to 1969, go to the Italian city Milano, this is in northern Italy, and everybody's shopping for Christmas presents and stuff, and suddenly a lot of bombs go off, and, you know, they kill people all over the place, and everybody's scared. And, 
you have this effect of terror. The first effect of terror is fear, you know, it spreads all over the place. And then as a second effect, uh, you, have, you need somebody uh, who, is, who is responsible for this. And then and the, the message comes out, you know, these were the communists. These were the communists, these were the communists. And people sort of believe this. And now, in 2001 or two, it was, I think, you have a trial in Italy, and, um, you know, you find out it was not the communists. It was right-wing people, you know, people from the Catholics, from the other camp. So it was a false flag operation. And then you have an Italian general uh, from the intelligence service, Giandelia Moletti, his name is, and he says, you know, it's true we did this, but we did this together with the CIA. In a small little village called Peteano. And uh, there, um, you know, you had a few police officers receiving a call saying, there's a little car at the woods and why don't you check it out? It seems to have been stolen. And then the police officers go there and once they are close enough, the car just blows up and they're all dead. This was in 1972. And we found out only 1984, and that's 12 years later, that in fact, it was a right-wing Catholic, you know, an Italian Catholic who staged this in cooperation with the Italian military secret service. The man actually responsible for the Petiano bombing was Vincenzo Vinciguerra. He was a member of right-wing terrorist groups Avangardia Nazionale and Ordine Globo. To make it look like communists were responsible, he'd scratched a five-pointed star, the symbol of the Red Brigades, into the car's bonnet. During the investigation, an Italian explosives expert forged a report into what the bomb was made of. Also a member of Ordine Nuovo, the expert said that the explosive used was the one favoured by the Red Brigades, when in fact it was from a Gladio stash. Once his guilt had been established, and he was no longer protected by the security services, Vinci Guerra became very candid about how Gladio operated. Le donne, i bambini, le persone innocenti e strane, ad ogni gioco politico. Per una ragione semplice, perché bisognava obbligare questa gente, l'opinione pubblica italiana, a rivolgersi allo Stato, a rivolgersi al regime per chiedere maggiore sicurezza. Il ruolo della destra d'Italia è stato proprio questo. Si è messo al servizio di apparati di Stato che hanno alimentato una strategia che giustamente è stata definita della tensione in quanto bisognava portare la gente ad accettare in qualsiasi momento nell'arco di un trattenio dal 1960 al 1985-86 la possibilità di uno stato d'emergenza perché la gente avrebbe barattato molto volentieri parte della sua libertà con una sicurezza con la sicurezza di poter camminare sulle strade, viaggiare sui treni, salire sugli aerei, entrare in banca. Questa è la logica politica che sta dietro tutte le strade che rimangono impunite proprio perché lo Stato non può condannare se stesso o proclamare se stesso un colpevole di quello che ha fatto. Quando io parlo di ideale, io parlo oggi di un ideale di verità, non è più un ideale ideologico. Io sono raggiunto alla conclusione non da oggi. Il fascismo è stata un'esperienza storica che si è definitivamente tramontata, che è stata appesatamente mantenuta in vita. Quindi diciamo un ideale di verità rivolto non soltanto al passato ma anche al presente e al futuro. Questo ideale di verità 
esclude che io possa pentirmi di ciò che ho fatto perché ciò che ho fatto giusto o sbagliato che possa essere giudicato l'ho fatto credendo profondamente e continuo a credere This strategic relationship between NATO, neo-fascist terrorist groups and the CIA culminated in an attack on Bologna train station in August 1980. 18 kilos of military plastic explosive were detonated in the second class waiting room. Over 80 people were killed and hundreds injured. A series of trials ensued in Italy. It wasn't until 1995, 15 years after the bombing, that a conclusive verdict was reached. Two members of a neo-fascist group were convicted of the bombing. Also convicted for diverting the investigation were two Italian intelligence agents who were members of the P2 Masonic Lodge. The Grand Master of that lodge, Licio Gelli, was also convicted of conspiring to divert the investigation. It became clear that P2 was not just a Masonic order, but a CIA-funded parallel government. La loggia P2 non è un centro di potere occulto, è un centro di potere palese, occulto per l'opinione pubblica, non per lo Stato e i vertici dello Stato, che ha svolto la sua funzione ben precisa in questa battaglia anticomunista e che io considero una, una di quelle strutture parallele che possa equiparare a Claudio, non con compiti militari, ma con compiti di politica interna, di sovversione interna. A list of members of the lodge was found in a raid on Licio Gelli's house in 1981. Among the 962 names were those of the heads of all three intelligence services, 48 MPs, industrialists, bankers, media moguls, journalists, civil servants, judges, military officials, and Silvio Berlusconi. di Bologna viene in un momento in cui massimo è l'allarme del regime e l'allarme dei servizi di sicurezza italiani alleate e nordamericane per la potenza elettorale raggiunta dal Partito Comunista Italiano. Quindi la strage di Bologna, anche questa, risponde come tutte le altre strage alla logica di uno Stato che non sapendo più come fronteggiare un nemico politico, ricorre ai mezzi estremi, ai mezzi della violenza da attribuire ora agli estremisti di sinistra, ora agli estremisti di destra, per giustificare un suo eventuale intervento. Non c'è altra verità per la strategia di Bologna. Also found in the raid on Licio Gelli's house was US Army Field Manual 3031. Appendix B of this manual explains the Gladio strategy of covert warfare. And the, um, the smoking gun memo that Ganza cites in his book is from the Pentagon's Defense Intelligence Agency. 
And this came, this was appended to the Italian parliamentary inquiry, and it says here, it's worth quoting at some length, it says, There may be times when host country governments show passivity or indecision in the face of communist subversion, and according to the interpretation of the U.S. Secret Services, do not react with sufficient effectiveness. In other words, your population is, you know, kind of getting apathetic, they're getting too pro-lefty. U.S. Army intelligence must have the means of launching special operations which will convince host country governments and public opinion of the reality of the insurgent danger. To reach this aim, U.S. Army intelligence should seek to penetrate the insurgency by means of agents or special assignments with the task of forming special action groups among the most radical elements of the insurgency. This is really important. In case it has not been possible to successfully infiltrate such agents into the leadership of the rebels, instrumentalize extreme leftist organizations for one's own ends in order to achieve the above-described target. So the methodology that is advocated here is crucial, that you actually take existing networks, you infiltrate them, you radicalize them, and you mobilize them, or you create them. The Americans have dismissed the document as a Soviet forgery, but the strategy is in keeping with that described in the Northwoods memo and in numerous other declassified documents from covert operations. I never heard such a thing, frankly. I don't know the origin of the statement, and you can find any statement in any country. I mean, you can find jackass statements anywhere. I suspect it is an authentic document. I don't, I don't doubt it. I never saw it, but uh, it's the kind of uh, uh, special forces military operations that are uh, described. Era un documento che mi diede, mi consegnò un mio carissimo amico che faceva parte della CIA prima di rientrare a in sede disse prenditi questo quando hai un ritaglio di tempo leggitelo le carte rosse sono state infiltrate sono state infiltrate con notevoli difficoltà ah, perché erano molto una struttura molto chiusa e direi anche efficiente e, ma tutte queste sono state anche delle infiltrazioni eh, notevoli che hanno portato a ottimi risultati ognuno si è tutto ma mai in una battaglia ideologica propria. Si proclama nazionale socialista, ma in realtà è il suo capo, fino ad altri. Ha lavorato per lo Stato Maggiore per conformare Nato e è stato un esperto del segno e ha reclutato uomini per queste strutture parallele. Now this whole process that continued up to the late 1980s generated immense fear throughout Western Europe. I mean, Ganda documents very real bombings, very real civilian casualties in Italy, Spain, Germany, France, Turkey, Greece. The EU actually issued a resolution on this in the early 1990s. This process was instrumental in legitimizing the crackdown on domestic left-leaning dissent inside Western Europe and legitimizing interventionism abroad throughout the Cold War. That's phase two. Phase three is the Afghan proxy war. In February 1979, the American-backed Shah in Iran was overthrown and replaced by Ayatollah Khomeini. 
In neighbouring Afghanistan, the Soviet-backed government was coming under increasing pressure from the Islamic resistance. In December, the Soviets invaded. The Americans feared losing control of a potentially lucrative and strategically useful part of Eurasia. We were faced with the possibility that one way or another, before too long, we may have either a hostile Iran on the northern shore of the Persian Gulf facing us, or we might even have the Soviets there. As they had with the fascists in Italy, Western policymakers saw an opportunity. From 1979 to 1989, billions of dollars flooded into Afghanistan in support of the Mujahideen. Weapons were provided and camps set up to train the holy warriors in the tactics of guerrilla warfare and terrorism to use against the Soviet invaders. Now obviously the collapse of the Soviet Union by 1989 meant two things. First of all, it opened the way for the United States to enter into strategic regions that otherwise it couldn't do in the context of the bipolar system. You know, obviously there was a limit. They couldn't go all the way into Eastern Europe because the Soviet Union, that was their doorstep. Suddenly, with the USSR down, the entire world was for the taking. But there was also significant problems. For now, with the USSR down, there was no gigantic monolithic threat by which to legitimize the same paradigm of power politics. But not to worry, the process of creating such a threat was well underway already 10 years earlier in 1979. In June that year, the United States commenced covert operations in Afghanistan to exploit the potential for social conflict. According to Brzezinski, US involvement, he said, was designed to foster unrest and bog down the USSR into a costly and bloody invasion, and indeed to provoke the USSR into an invasion. This was just the beginning. And that will deal first with Iran, then with Afghanistan and the regional implications. Brzezinski was, in the Carter administration, the chief visionary of how this policy might be carried out. Even before the Soviets invaded, as he watched their proxy client Communist Party in Afghanistan get into trouble during the first months of 1979, he began to think about whether or not the United States, by aiding the resistance to the Soviet-sponsored Communist Party, might uh, begin to roll back Soviet influence in Central Asia and also just embarrass the Soviets in their effort to expand their influence globally. And after the invasion, uh, Brzezinski wrote a memo to President Carter uh, in the last days of 1979 that's now on the public record, it's really a fascinating document. And he essentially, it's a quite a discursive note, uh, reflective, and he says, uh, you know, in effect, Mr. President, uh, we have an opportunity here uh, to create a Soviet Vietnam. Do we know whether any Soviet units have reached the border? No, they're holding back. They are holding back. We started providing weapons to the Mujahideen from various sources again. Some, for example, some Soviet arms from the Egyptians and the Chinese. We even got Soviet arms from the Czechoslovak communist government since it was obviously susceptible to material incentives and at some point we started buying arms for the Mujahideen from the Soviet army in Afghanistan because that army was increasingly corrupt. The West even financed the printing of textbooks for children to radicalize Afghan society. These textbooks were distributed by the United Nations. 
And according to the Washington Post, you actually had images of, like, teaching kids to count, they would have images of bombs, tanks, missiles as, as kind of educational guidance, how to get these kids to know. So there was a very, very deliberate process here. U.S. National Security Advisor Brzezinski flew to Pakistan to set about rallying resistance. He wanted to arm the Mujahideen without revealing America's role. On the Afghan border near the Khyber Pass, he urged the soldiers of God to redouble their efforts. So we know of their deep belief in God, and we are confident that their struggle will succeed. That land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. The purpose of coordinating with the Pakistanis would be to make the Soviets bleed for as much and as long as is possible. Uh, essentially, under Bill Casey, the CIA created a three-part intelligence alliance to fund and arm the Mujahideen and to initially to harass Soviet occupation forces, and eventually they embraced the goal of driving them out. And the three-way alliance, each of the parties had a distinct role to play. For the Saudis, their intelligence service primarily provided cash. Each year, the Congress would secretly allocate a certain amount of money to support the CIA's program. After that allocation was complete, uh, the U.S. In, uh, intelligence liaison would fly to Riyadh, and the Saudis would write a matching check. Uh, the U.S. role was to provide logistics and, and uh, techn technological support as well as money. And the Saudis really uh, collaborated with Pakistan's intelligence service, ISI, to really run the war on the front lines. It was the Pakistani army, and particularly ISI, that picked the political winners and losers in the jihad. It wasn't until really between about 83 to 85 that the forces in Washington who asked the question, well, maybe we can win this. Let's not put in $100 million a year worth of weapons. Let's put in a billion dollars worth a year worth of weapons. The billions of dollars would eventually pay off. The Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan, their system rotting and bankrupt. The Intelligence Alliance had succeeded and had a new proxy force for covert operations. Over the following decades, militant Islam would become a useful force to inflict on target countries. I'll begin with a statement that I found. I was doing research into the background of 9-11 and terrorism, and I found a book by um, a well-known Swiss TV journalist by the name of Richard Le Bouvier called Dollars for Terror. One thing struck me, I mean, it's a very good book, but one statement struck me. He interviewed a CIA analyst anonymously, who said to him regarding the whole policy towards al-Qaeda and uh, Islam, he said, quote, the policy 
of guiding the evolution of Islam and of helping them against our adversaries, worked marvelously well in Afghanistan against the Red Army. The same doctrines can still be used to destabilize what remains of Russian power and especially to counter the Chinese influence in Central Asia. Now, when I read this, I was quite shocked because really what it seemed to be saying is that there was, there was some kind of strategic thinking when we got involved with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to repel the Soviet Union. There was some kind of thinking that maybe we could actually use these guys in a wider context. Even if it wasn't well thought out, it was something that struck me as very, very significant. And I thought, how do we find out whether this is true? So what I set out to do, I said, so what are these key regions I can look at to see whether this is true? You know, Russian power and Chinese power. So we can look at Eastern Europe, the Balkans, and Central Asia, and Asia. That's what I did. And I discovered, to my great surprise, that there was a lot of disturbing evidence that the United States, not just the United States, Britain and various Western European powers as well, had been to this day connecting themselves in some way or other with the Mujahideen, with Al-Qaeda, in various different regions for various different interests. And I just want, want to try and give you a very brief breakdown of some of the kind of interesting pieces of evidence I found for this connection. The most prominent one, I think, to my mind, is the Balkans. We are told that we disconnected ourselves from the Mujahideen completely when the Soviet Union collapsed. This is just not true. It's well documented now that in the first Bosnian conflict between 1992 and 94, the Pentagon created an air funnel. They flew in Mujahideen connected to Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda from many different parts of the world. In the heart of Europe, thousands of Arab fighters. Zenitsa, 1995. They come to wage holy war in support of the Bosnian army. Their commanders had bigger plans. I mean, they landed in Bosnia in various places, and they used them to try and manipulate the Bosnian conflict in a certain direction. Whatever one may think of our motive for getting involved in the Bosnian conflict, whether it was humanitarian or not, is besides the point. In doing so, we connected ourselves with people who are connected to terrorism. And subsequently, as a result of that, Bosnia has been described as a safe haven for terrorists in Europe, a launching pad for European terrorist operations. Just to give you an idea of the documentation that is available, this was confirmed, this, the existence of this liaison between the United States and Britain and the Mujahideen. Um, one of the most prominent sources was the Dutch report into what happened at Srebrenica. Um, the official inquiry that happened a few years ago. And that was based on Dutch intelligence sources. I tried to draw connections between these kind of liaisons and terrorist attacks. So I looked at the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, and I also looked at the 1998 US Embassy bombings. And again, I found disturbing reason to believe that this kind of connection had a direct impact in undermining our ability 
or willingness to deal with these terrorists who are quite directly involved with operations on US soil. Just to give you an idea, the mastermind of the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993, Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman, kind of commonly known as the Blind Sheikh. This guy was basically, obviously, he was, he, he was involved deeply in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. He was the guy who headed the, 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 the main Al-Qaeda cell in the United States that carried this out. What I discovered was that the Blind Sheikh was also deeply involved in recruiting Mujahideen, not just during the war in Afghanistan, but also for the Bosnian conflict. His refugees, Al-Kifa Refugee Center, which was based in New York, Brooklyn, was originally, in, prior to the 1990s, was, was uh, funneling finances and recruiting people to go and fight with the CIA um, in, the war to, in, in the war in Afghanistan to repel Soviet occupation. Many reports now confirm that in 1993, it switched its operations to Bosnia. And we didn't just stop then. The back to the Balkans, Kosovo, Macedonia, 1996 to 2003. Again, this is not this is not unusual. This is pretty conventional stuff. Ethnic violence broke out between Albanians and the Serbs. In my 7-7 book, again, I discuss how a lot of this violence was again orchestrated, quite consciously, by the United States and Britain. <coughs> and again, this is not conspiracy through his mainstream sources and again NATO had supposedly intervened on humanitarian grounds on behalf of Kosovo Albanians in March 1999 but the same policy that happened in Bosnia was replicated here in 98 the KLA had been listed by the State Department as a terrorist organization financed by bin Laden the US and Albanian and Macedonian intelligence reports you know they had their officials saying that KLA fighters were training in Al-Qaeda camps in Afghanistan and Albania, and there were there were border crossings going on from into Kosovo from Albania. Hundreds of Al Qaeda mujahideen. There was heavy interpenetration. There was arms. There was finance. There was drugs. According to Tim Judah, Balkans expert, in 1996 was when British SAS and American Delta Force instructors had begun training the KLA. The CIA began was supplying military assistance up to and during the 99 bombing campaign, went to training manuals, field advice, telling them which hill to hide behind, actually telling them how to carry operations on the ground, all under the cover of OSCE ceasefire monitors. That was in Kosovo. Then in Macedonia, when the Kosovo war started to wind up, so you're looking at around 2000, they changed their name to the National Liberation Army, the NLA. Its links with Al-Qaeda were as strong as ever, that these were very heavily interpenetrated with Al-Qaeda. But the NLA was still receiving U.S. military assistance. Scott Taylor, who is one of Canada's top war reporters and former soldiers, he went to Tetovo in 2001, and he came back and he wrote an article saying, there's no denying the massive amount of material and expertise supplied by NATO to the guerrillas. This was at a time when NATO was on the outside offering Macedonia peacekeeping assistance. And Macedonia was actually seriously considering this. But they eventually realized as well that some of this was that there was a kind of tacit agreement. And this continued by June 2002 
A secret European intelligence report was leaked through a think tank to Dutch national radio, and it documented ongoing NATO arms and training to the NLA. So this continued, this strategy of tension continued. So why the Balkans? General Sir Mark Jackson, who he commanded NATO troops at the time in the region, and he, said, he made a statement in 1999. He said, we will certainly stay here for a long time in order to guarantee the safety of the energy corridors which cross Macedonia. And he was, of course, talking about the Trans-Balkan pipeline planned to pass through Bulgaria, Macedonia, and Albania, the main route to the West for Central Asian oil and gas. What we had now in Iraq, in Iraq, in the ongoing Iraq war, was that we have special air service, uh, SAS. That is, these are the, the British special forces. And uh, in one case, uh, you know, they dressed up as, as Muslims, you know, really wearing a wig and, and wearing the sort of uh, clothes a Muslim would wear. In 2005, we had them in Basra being caught by, by the Iraqis who said, gee, why, why do you guys dress up like that? And they, they then found the... The car was full of explosives nearby. The two men, who were later confirmed as belonging to the Special Reconnaissance Regiment of the SAS, were taken to a Basra police station. Two British soldiers have been arrested by the Iraqi authorities in Basra tonight after apparently firing at police. Angry scenes erupted as crowds hurling rocks and petrol bombs attacked a British armoured personnel carrier. One soldier was engulfed by flames as he escaped, the Ministry of Defence said it was trying to get access to the two servicemen, but refused to confirm reports that they were Special Forces personnel working undercover. The British Army sent in armoured personnel carriers and helicopters in an assault on the prison. The locals in Basra fought back, and in the ensuing battle seven Iraqis were killed and 43 injured. However, the attack on the prison was just a diversion, as the two men were actually rescued from a nearby house. After the rescue operation, General Sir Mike Jackson commented, Let me make it clear that it was important to retrieve those two soldiers. The British Army looks after its own. The governor of Basra demanded an apology and compensation for the victims of the raid. Initially, the British refused any such apology or compensation. Local Iraqi security services refused to cooperate with the Western forces, and eventually the British caved, effectively admitting responsibility for what had happened. What is important from a historical perspective is that we always sit back when we see a terrorist attack and say, gee, okay, what was this? Was this my tax money being used against me by the state? Or was this a private group that carried out another atrocity? The official version of what happened on the morning of July 7th, 2005, says that four men killed themselves and 52 other people in intentional suicide attacks. Three of the alleged bombers were British-born Pakistanis who grew up in Yorkshire, Mohammed Sadiq Khan, Shahzad Tanweer, and Haseeb Hussain. The fourth alleged bomber, Jermaine Lindsay, was born in Jamaica but grew up in Britain and converted to Islam when he was 15. 
The British government's story of what happened, how and why is contained in three reports, comprising just over 200 pages. There is virtually no forensic physical evidence in the public domain. The first two reports were published simultaneously in May 2006, ten months after 7-7. One was a Home Office narrative of events written by an unknown civil servant. It is full of cryptic and ambiguous statements, and offers almost no evidence in support of its claims. The second 2006 report was written by the Intelligence and Security Committee, who are handpicked by the Prime Minister to oversee the British intelligence agencies. The report devoted only five pages to the question of what MI5 knew about the four alleged bombers before 7-7. However, evidence presented at the trial of seven men accused of planning a fertiliser bomb attack showed that MI5 knew far more than the ISC had reported. A second report was published in 2009 which examined this evidence and explicitly sought to put down conspiracy theories about 7-7. The official version of how the four alleged bombers got to London on the morning of July 7th is intensely problematic. The Home Office report says that three of the men travelled down the M1 from Leeds to Luton, while a fourth came across from Aylesbury. Leaving their cars outside the station, the four then put on rucksacks at 6.49am. The report then has the four men entering the station at 7.15, being pictured on CCTV at 7.21 heading towards the platform and catching the 740 train to King's Cross Thameslink station in London. Even this part of the government's story, which should be so straightforward, is riddled with factual errors. Numerous questions arise from this. Initial reports had the men taking the 748 train to London. 748 is the time that appears in a BBC documentary broadcast as part of their science series Horizon. 7.48am. The train leaves Luton station. 8.26am. The four bombers arrive at King's Cross Station and walk to the underground. The account provided by Horizon, and others in the mainstream media, has one immense flaw. The 748 train would not have got the four to London in time to catch the tube trains they supposedly bombed. But in the Home Office narrative, the men took the 740 train to King's Cross. Satisfied that they'd got the truth, the mainstream media widely repeated this version of events. But an independent researcher found out that the 740 train was cancelled that morning, and so the Home Office were caught making a blatantly false statement. Researchers have found out the actual train times from Luton to London that day, as well as the times that the affected tube trains departed King's Cross. From this, we can establish that the only train that actually ran that morning that would have got the four men to London in time to catch the tube trains was the 724, delayed to 725. Research by July 7th Truth campaigners found that Scotland Yard had never given the Home Office a time for the train. The police also claimed that it was them that had first alerted the Home Office to the mistake, though researchers and truth campaigners had been doing this for months. In July 2006, then-Home Secretary John Reid admitted the mistake. It then took more than a year for the Home Office to publish an update to their account. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the amendment doesn't make much sense. The new version has the men putting on their rucksacks twice, once at about 6.49 and again at about 7.14. It also has the four men entering the station just after putting on their rucksacks for the second time, at about 7.14. At that time, this was the only CCTV image available from Luton Station that morning, 
and it shows the men entering the station at nearly 7.22. If the time code on the CCTV is correct, then this only leaves around three minutes for the four men to enter the station, buy tickets, locate the correct platform and walk to it. This is no mean feat in a busy commuter station, particularly on a morning with many disruptions. From the summer of 2008 onwards, more CCTV images have been released, but they only pose further questions about what we've been told. In many of the frames there is no date or timestamp visible, making it impossible to verify when the footage was recorded. It is impossible to identify any of the men, or the car, in the frames purportedly showing them driving down from Leeds. And there are no images of Jermaine Lindsay driving across from Aylesbury, only this footage of unidentifiable people and vehicles in Luton Station car park. In the frames from Woodall Motorway Services, Shazad Tanweer is clearly shown wearing white trousers. But in the pictures of the four men entering Luton Station, Tanweer's trousers are black. No one can be identified in the images showing four men putting on rucksacks and heading towards Luton Station, but the timecode is consistent with the original CCTV image. At the trial where this footage was first shown, it was explained that the timecodes on some of the CCTV images are wrong. If this is true, then it is surprising that a train station, so reliant on accurate timing, would have so many cameras that showed the wrong time. The Information Commissioner has yet to release a conclusive timeline of events. In the footage of the four going through the ticket barrier and down onto the platform, the timecodes are largely blurred out. But in the original frames, the timecodes would have been clear. Regardless of whether the clocks were accurate, or a few minutes fast, the video couldn't have shown the men catching a train at 7.40 or 7.48. The original Luton CCTV image was released less than two weeks after 7.7, so how did the Home Office get it so wrong when they published their narrative account almost a year later? The last images of the four on 7-7 show them walking through King's Cross Station and towards the underground. There are no frames of them walking towards particular tube platforms or getting on trains that were later affected. In the last frames of this clip, a timestamp is visible. The 7th of July 2005, 8.26am. Even if these clips are authentic, they provide little confirmation of the government's story. When John Reed admitted the mistake about the train time from Luton, the father of one of the victims said that it raised concerns about the accuracy of the rest of the report. For many people, the release of the CCTV images will not have dispelled these doubts. Exactly what happened to the tube trains on the morning of July 7th isn't at all clear. The number of explosions, where and when they took place, and what caused them, are all disputed, with official sources often contradicting one another. Initial reports of the police conducting controlled explosions on devices found in the underground, and injuries to passengers and damage to tube trains caused by electrical power surges, somehow became a story of four suicide bombers using homemade explosives. Many people have asked questions because of this, Questions that the police investigation, and reports by the Intelligence and Security Committee and the Home Office, have failed to answer. Officially, there were only four explosions in London that morning. According to the police, the Home Office and the ISC, as well as the major media, 
After the four arrived at King's Cross, three of them took tube trains, spreading out across the capital before detonating their bombs almost simultaneously. Likewise, they say the fourth detonated his bomb on a bus in Tavistock Square. However, throughout the morning the BBC and other major media were quoting officials saying there were far more than just four explosions. With the 10 o'clock news, I'm Max Rushton. Good morning, and as you've been hearing, TfL are advising people to avoid the entire tube network after a major power failure. British Transport Police say power surge incidents have caused a series of bangs on the London Underground at Allgate, Edgware Road, King's Cross, Old Street and Russell Square. British Transport Police say a number of people have been hurt, one of them seriously. 94.9. I can tell you now the BBC are reporting that police say there have been three bus explosions. We'll go live to... Now, the list that we've got at the minute, uh, where the police are investigating, is Edgware Road, King's Cross, Liverpool Street, Russell Square, Allgate East and Moorgate. Uh, there are all the underground stations that we've been told that they're investigating at the moment. Uh, we have now had it confirmed, unfortunately, that there are three buses as well that have been exploded. Uh, we did know about one. That's the one that we talked about earlier on at Tavistock Place. Um, we, we now know that there have been another two on Do top of Do we know where those other two are yet? At the minute, oh, the details have not come through on that one, but they have confirmed that, yes, there have been others. Thank you, John. Good morning. The BBC security correspondent, Frank Gardner, says Arab sources who monitor al-Qaeda have told the BBC they believe today's explosions in London are almost certainly the work of al-Qaeda. A few moments ago, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Sir Ian Blair, said there'd been six blasts. They've happened at a number of underground stations and on buses, including what's been called major incidents at Liverpool Street and Edgware Road. Seven explosions now, uh, the Metropolitan Police telling us. Uh, I will list them, and you see them there on the map. Uh, Edgware Road, King's Cross, Liverpool Street, Russell Square, Aldgate East, Moorgate, and the bus... By the afternoon, the police were only talking about four explosions, three on the underground and one on a bus. But at that time, they were saying the tube explosions were staggered over about half an hour. At 8.51 this morning, there was an incident at Moorgate, around Moorgate, Liverpool Street, Moorgate East. At 8.56 this morning, uh, at the King's Cross, Russell Square incident, at 9.17, there was an explosion on a train coming into Edgware Road underground station. It wasn't until two days later that Scotland Yard said the explosions were almost simultaneous. And it is this version that made it into the official accounts published almost a year later. David Minahan is a former claims investigator for a firm of solicitors and an insurance company, and was the president of a major trade union. He compiled a dossier of evidence, now published by the July 7th Truth Campaign, composed of photographs, eyewitness accounts and official statements that contradict the Home Office's version of events. He concluded that in all likelihood there were several explosions beyond the four officially admitted, and he is convinced there has been a cover-up of what happened. Some have put these contradictions down to the mayhem of covering an ongoing large-scale emergency response to a major incident. But the fact remains that there is no one single coherent version of events that explains what happened. The suggestion that there were more than four explosions could help explain some of the discrepancies, and the eyewitness reports that support other versions of events. It is unclear exactly where in London's tube network the explosions occurred that morning, 
and which direction the trains were heading in when the explosions hit them. Official accounts show glaring contradictions on this issue, any one of which casts doubt on the government's story. According to the Home Office narrative, three of the men must have boarded tube trains at King's Cross. The government say that Mohammed Sadiq Khan took a westbound circle line train, Shazad Tanweer took an eastbound circle line train, and Jermaine Lindsay took a southbound Piccadilly line train, all heading away from King's Cross. In total, five stations in this area were said to have been affected by the events that morning. Oldgate, Oldgate East, Liverpool Street, Moorgate and Old Street were all reported by officials in the media as possible explosion sites. At 10.20 that morning, the Metropolitan Police issued a press release naming Liverpool Street, Oldgate East and Moorgate stations as being involved. By 12.30, Oldgate East had become Oldgate, but Liverpool Street and Moorgate were still on the list. Shortly afterwards, then Home Secretary Charles Clark described four explosions to the House of Commons, saying one had occurred between Oldgate East and Liverpool Street. This isn't just a question of different tube stations, but of different lines on the tube altogether. According to the Home Office narrative, there was only one explosion on an eastbound Circle Line train. Going out of Liverpool Street, an eastbound Circle Line train goes to Oldgate. However, this witness describes travelling westbound on the Circle Line on a train that was clearly affected by whatever happened. Yeah, but a lot of head injuries, a lot of head and facial injuries. Um, it was obviously the glass. So I know you started at the beginning. Were you on the Orgate train? Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, it was an Orgate. No, it was the Circle Line train, um, westbound, uh, going. We were between Orgate Station and Liverpool Street, but they made us go back via Orgate rather than towards Liverpool Street. And you were on the train where the explosion happened. Yes. Yeah. On the train. If there was an explosion on a westbound Circle Line train heading towards Liverpool Street, then it was also heading towards King's Cross, something the government's narrative can't explain. Consistent with what Charles Clark had said, it also appears a Hammersmith and City Line train was affected. Mike Brown, the Chief Operating Officer for the London Underground, said that all of the trains were evacuated within an hour, except for one involved at Russell Square. But passengers on a Hammersmith and City Line train, probably 235 on its way from Oldgate East to Liverpool Street, spoke of waiting two hours to be rescued. Syra Khan wrote an account for MSNBC, describing the passengers waiting on the train without any explanation being given to them. When the train was eventually evacuated, the passengers were taken out through Oldgate East Station, put on buses and taken away from the area. The police then took everyone's names and addresses, and accounts of what people had seen. An interview in The Independent with another witness, Manjit Danyal, suggests a reason for the secrecy. She said, There were a few sparks and I thought it was just a power surge. Then I saw this fireball a few carriages in front of me and everything went black. She went on to describe carnage, people covered in blood and people screaming out saying they were dying. But this train was travelling towards Liverpool Street and therefore towards King's Cross and so if people were injured or killed on it, it couldn't have been suicide bombers travelling from King's Cross. Further complicating matters is the account of Will Lamb, who says that he was travelling in the opposite direction on the Hammersmith and City line, towards Oldgate East. I got on the, I got onto the train and it went towards Oldgate East, and suddenly there was this huge shake and a big gust of wind. 
The passengers on this train also had to wait for two hours for help to arrive. I remember about 11 o'clock, they actually got some people down uh, to, from the rear end of the tube, walking all the way to the front to talk to the driver, and there was rumours that there might be an uh, evacuation. And at this point, everybody was quite worried. And, but I, I, I personally remember thinking, I can't, can't panic, because that's the worst thing you can do in a situation like that. You've got to remain calm, work with the people around you, and get out, out there as quick as you can. CCTV images from Liverpool Street show passengers boarding a Circle Line train before it departs towards Oldgate. Thirty seconds later, another camera shows smoke billowing onto the platform. Though the clock shows the wrong time, the footage does essentially support the Home Office's version of events. But the pictures only show one train, whereas eyewitness accounts and official reports suggest as many as four could have been involved in just the East London area. A Transport for London press release from July 7th has the train affected on the Piccadilly line heading northbound, towards King's Cross. A Tube Lines press release from July 7th also says the train was northbound. Likewise, the Manchester Evening News ran an article describing an explosion on a train pulling into King's Cross station. This was changed two days later to say that the train was headed southbound, away from King's Cross and towards Russell Square. This didn't stop the Independent printing a timeline the following day that still talked about a northbound train. According to the Home Office narrative, the explosion occurred on a southbound train, with Jermaine Lindsay having boarded at King's Cross and heading towards Russell Square. In TFL's update, the train number is identified as 311. 311 is also the number given in a BBC interview with Gary Stevens, the duty manager of Russell Square Tube Station. The same number appears in much of the rest of the BBC's coverage of 77, and in the report of the duty operations manager for the Piccadilly line, obtained by a July 7th researcher. The problem with this is that train 311 was northbound on the Piccadilly line, the direction originally given by TfL, but impossible for a suicide bomber travelling from King's Cross. The number of the affected train was changed to 331, though when this took place isn't clear because TfL never issued a public update. Nonetheless, 331 is the number they've given out in response to inquiries by truth campaigners. When a researcher asked for the whereabouts of the train with the original number given out, 311, the answer came back that at 8.50 that morning it was in South Kensington, several stations down the line from King's Cross and Russell Square making it difficult to see how any such mix-up could have occurred. Ian Wade, who worked for the BBC's finance department and was on one of the trains that were affected, phoned into BBC Radio London that morning to give his account of what had happened. He described the bang as a relatively minor incident, said that they had to wait for 15 minutes in the dark before they could escape, and that he hadn't seen anyone with serious injuries. BBC London's 94.9's Ian Wade was actually on the underground when the incident occurred. He joins me now. Morning, Ian. John. Where were you? Were you on one of the trains? Or I was what? actually on the train it happened to, John. And an almighty bang. Lights went out, filled the actual ca uh, the um, carriage we was in. 
we were doing the, in the actual carriage about 15 minutes. They started filing us out. With, they shut the line down, all the electricity, and the, the officials have walked us down. Now, as I was walking, I asked one of the officials what happened, and he said one, uh, one of the electric overhead uh, lights, he thinks, fell down and hit the front of the train. But the people on, generally were very, very good. You know, there was people keeping people calm and saying, sure. look, we're all right, there's no fire, you know, hang on. How long were you in the dark for? I would say 15 minutes. So there was covered no, in soot, though. Yeah, covered in soot, but no actual uh, damage to the train in terms of windows in or carriages Not crushed. in the carriage I was in, John, but right. I didn't see the whole train, so Do I don't you... know, mate, honestly. How about injuries? Any injuries? Well, I'm just looking over. I see someone standing over there. He's got a short, uh, short shirt on, and he's got a lot of cuts on his arm. But other than that, that's the first and only one that I've seen actually injured. Other than that, people are, are sobbing and covered in... Also on the train was Ian's wife Eve, who the following day gave an interview to The Independent describing a quite different version of events. She described a big blast, the lights going out, and waiting for 15 minutes in the dark. She said that she initially thought that it was just a continuation of the problems that had dogged the Piccadilly line all morning. Unlike Ian, she said that she soon realised it was something more serious when she saw numerous injured people on the way out through the tunnel. The day after, Ian Wade gave a new interview to the BBC. In contrast to his phone call to the radio, he described significant damage to the carriage in front of his, and people with their limbs missing and their clothes burnt off. All three versions, two of Ian's and one of Eve's, say that it took 15 minutes before the train started to be evacuated. However, according to Rachel North's diary, it was more like 20 to 30 minutes. According to the blog of Steve Lovegrove, it was 35 minutes. According to Gary Stevens, it was 40 minutes. And according to this witness, only three or four minutes. We were just in a carriage. There was a big explosion. It went black. There was loads of smoke. We were in there for maybe three, four minutes. Everyone's and then we Different sources claim that three different sets of emergency workers were the first on the scene. The Guardian and the Times have Gary Holness as the last surviving passenger to be pulled from the carriage. But according to the Telegraph, it was the miraculous Jill Hicks who was the last to be rescued. If there were two trains affected on the Piccadilly line, one headed in each direction, it could help explain some of the anomalies in the different accounts. There are similar problems in the accounts of what happened at Edgware Road. In a Metropolitan Police press release issued on July 7th, they said that the explosion happened at 9.17, that the train primarily affected was headed into Edgware Road station, that the explosion blasted a hole through a wall and onto a train at an adjoining platform, and that three trains were thought to have been involved. The same details were given at a press conference, also on July 7th. At 9.17, there was an explosion on a train coming into Edgware Road Underground Station, which blew a hole through a wall onto another train in an adjoining platform. In fact, it's believed that three uh, trains were involved in that particular incident, and so far there are five fatalities in that particular incident. Numerous questions arise from this. If the affected trains were actually in the station, then why was there nearly a half-hour discrepancy in the reporting of the time of the explosion? By the time of the Met Police's one-week anniversary recap of events, the suggestion of a third train being affected had disappeared. The time of the explosion was changed to 8.50, 
but the story was still that the primary train was headed into Edgware Road Station, and that the explosion blasted a hole through a wall and onto a train at a nearby platform. Inquiries by a July 7th researcher yielded a response from Transport for London saying there are no separate tunnels at Edgware Road Station, and so no hole was blasted through a tunnel wall. How could the Metropolitan Police have got it so wrong even a week after the event? Another response from TfL confirmed that only two trains were damaged. It also says that no fatalities or injuries were recorded on the second train. It is now widely reported that the train was westbound, headed out of Edgware Road Station on its way to Paddington. The Home Office's narrative is unclear, not stating the location of the train. This is particularly important at Edgware Road because several passengers who were killed or injured never should have been on a train from Edgware Road to Paddington. Two of these were the Benton sisters from Tennessee, who were on their way to the Tower of London, in the opposite direction. Uh, we got up that morning and um, got on the train. We were going to go to London um, Tower to see um, just one bridge and all that kind of stuff. We, we weren't on there long enough to notice anything. Yeah. I was still focused on my cup of coffee and yeah. <laughs> whether or not we were on the right train to get to the Tower of London. The injured woman in this famous photograph, Davinia Terrell, was reported to be on her way to Canary Wharf that morning. Just like the Benton sisters, she should therefore have been travelling in the opposite direction to the train primarily involved at Edgware Road. Another victim who died at Edgware Road was Jenny Nicholson. She was reported by the Guardian to have called her boyfriend shortly before catching an eastbound train at Paddington Station. As picked up by the Camden New Journal, this would have her on a train travelling in the opposite direction to the one supposedly bombed by Mohammed Sadiq Khan. Someone else who should not have been travelling from Edgware Road to Paddington was David Falks. A young man from Oldham, David was just starting work as a trainee with the Guardian newspaper. He was meant to get off the tube network at Edgware Road, and so should never have been on his way to Paddington. That particular morning was David's first trip to London. He was just 22, but he'd never travelled on the underground, and I'm a regular traveller on the underground, and he asked me what to do. And I told him he was only going three stops. Um, the, tr the train always stopped at every stop. When the doors opened, take two or three paces forward, tuck yourself in out of everybody's way, and when the doors open for the third time, get off. Shortly before Christmas 2007, Post-mortem reports were sent out to the families of victims. This was done without any kind of warning, or even asking the families whether they wanted to know the details. David's father Graham said at the time that there were fundamental differences between what they'd seen when they'd viewed their son's body, and what the post-mortem report said. Exactly where in the carriages the explosions took place is difficult to establish. Former Deputy Police Commissioner Andy Heyman said that the alleged bombers carried explosives onto the tube trains in rucksacks and detonated them on or close to the floor of the carriages. This version of events was repeated in the Home Office narrative, but many eyewitness reports contradict this. One of the most discussed accounts is that of Bruce Late, a dancer and instructor from Cambridge. He was in London that morning for an audition and got on the tube network at Liverpool Street. 
He was knocked unconscious by the blast, and when he came to, he waited for emergency services to arrive. Not long after July 7th, he was interviewed by the Cambridge Evening News. The article says that Bruce and his dance partner Crystal were closest to where the bomb went off. Bruce said that as a policeman told them to mind a hole in the floor of the carriage, he noticed that the metal was pushed upwards, as though the bomb was underneath the train. Years later, he essentially told the same story to the BBC for their show Conspiracy Files. As I was uh, getting off the train, I noticed that there was a hole, and the hole was uh, as if there was a bomb or an the explosion had burst up through the floor of the train, and that was just about there. This damage to the floor was also described by Lizzie Kenworthy. An off-duty police officer, she'd crawled through from an adjacent carriage to help the injured. In an interview with The Independent, she also described metal twisted upwards and a big hole in the floor. The explosion being under the train is also indicated by this Sky News interview with another survivor from Oldgate. Next thing, flash of light, an incredible bang, and, and the train ground to a halt, like as if it collapsed. Everything went pitch dark. It was just the explosion of something. It was like hearing it, but feeling it as well. You know, tremors, shiver all the way up through your body. My whole, whole body shook, and, and this floor panel came up um, underneath my feet. There are similar accounts from Edgware Road. The Guardian journalist Mark Honigsbaum was at Edgware Road that morning interviewing survivors, and he called in with this report. This is Mark Honigsbaum reporting from the London, the London Hilton Hotel opposite Edgware Road Station where we believe there was an explosion this morning under the carriage of a train. I've been speaking to survivors all morning. They'd just left Edgware Road Station when suddenly they felt they had a massive explosion. Uh, and some passengers described how the tiles, the covers uh, on the floor of the train suddenly flew up, raised up and... Honigsbaum later wrote an article saying that this report was irrelevant and that he'd interviewed other passengers who'd said that the explosion was inside the carriage. However, the only picture that has been released is inconclusive and many eyewitness reports are more consistent with an explosion underneath the train. Comments published by the BBC describe a large hole in the floor, manholes blown out and the floor ripped open. Sean Barron, an American who helped tend to the injured at a nearby hotel, was widely interviewed by the US media, both on the 7th and in the days afterwards. Yes, um, in, the, in the one train at Edgware Road, um, one of the patients who I was dealing with inside the hotel described uh, a large hole which had been um, blown on the floor. This damage was also described by Katie Benton. There's a big crater in the floor, like the bottom of the, of the train was just rubble and Susanna Pell, who was in the carriage next to the one the explosion hit. And a couple of minutes later, huge blast, um, all the glass and the, and the door from in between, blasted through, all came into my face, my ear. And then the sort of smoke kind of cleared a bit, and we could start to see, see and it was all starting to sink in. Um, and I tried to get up, and nearly fell down a hole in the bottom of the tube, actually. And according to this report, efforts to preserve the scene at Edgware Road for a forensic examination were hampered by the police conducting a controlled explosion. Well, we know, of course, that one of the explosions that happened today was at Edgware Road. Let's go to our correspondent there, Romley Weeks. And Romley, we're hearing news of a controlled explosion there as well. 
Yes, we've just been told by police that they are taking bomb experts into the tube and they're going to be conducting a controlled explosion here which suggests of course that they found some other kind of device here that of course hampering the operation to collect evidence uh, from the scene they there are similar problems with the explosion on the piccadilly line on july 14th the met police issued a press release summarizing the events it said that the explosion on the piccadilly line happened in the first carriage in the standing area by the first set of double doors this was also reported by the bbc this was then changed to the standing area by the second set of double doors. The reason for this change appears to be the account of Rachel North. She'd got on a southbound train that morning at King's Cross and was standing in the first carriage by the first set of double doors. In a diary for the BBC, she wrote about the question of the location of the explosion. In the entry for July 9th, she wrote about the news reporting that the explosion had been in her carriage, essentially where she'd been standing. She wrote that when she found out that the explosion had been in her carriage, she flipped and started pacing about, and then phoned the BBC to ask them where they'd got their information, before calling the terrorist hotline to give a more detailed witness statement. Other eyewitness accounts pose further questions about the Piccadilly line explosion. In Ian Wade's first interview to Radio London, he said that he was told by an official that an electric light had fallen down and hit the front of the train. In his second interview, he explicitly said that the explosion was on the ceiling of the carriage in front of his. Similarly, these witnesses interviewed on the morning of July 7th thought that the explosion came from above. What, what caused the injury? I don't know, they just felt like there was an explosion overhead. However, other accounts suggest that whatever happened, happened underneath the train, including this one from the BBC that says people thought that the train had derailed and the account of Angelo Power that says that the explosion physically ejected people from their seats. As we left Kings Cross Station, two fifteen seconds of large bang, people were physically ejected out of the chair, there's flashes of light on the side of the tube carriage. The initially released picture of the interior of the Piccadilly Line carriage does suggest an explosion from above but a more recently released image shows greater damage to the floor. With the authorities failing to release any more information from the forensic investigation, it is impossible to say at this stage where and how the explosions hit the tube carriages. Precisely what caused the explosions on July 7th is a question that has never been properly answered. Even after the explosion on the bus, officials in the media were saying that power surges had caused blasts or explosions at up to eight tube stations. They were still talking about six explosions at midday, when Tony Blair made his first statement. It's reasonably clear that there have been a, a series of terrorist attacks in London. Later that afternoon, police were only talking about four explosions, and officials were already looking for evidence that Islamic terrorists were to blame. Mid-afternoon, London, Scotland Yard, half a mile from the scene of one explosion. The Home Secretary briefing Mr Blair, the Foreign Office scouring Islamist websites for any sign of a threat, a claim, a perpetrator. For over a week, and days after the discovery of the alleged bomb factory in Leeds, it was unanimously reported that the explosive used was of military origin, possibly coming from arms dealers or terrorists in the Balkans. And the Mirror claimed that the explosive used was the military-grade RDX. 
The Times reported that Scotland Yard had asked authorities round Europe to check military bases and building sites for missing explosives. However, unspecified forensic examination of the strange items found in Leeds led investigators to change their story once again. It was then widely reported that the explosive used was homemade organic peroxide, either TATP or HMTD. The official reports published in 2006 offer little clarification. The Home Office report says that forensic examination was still going on almost a year later, and only goes so far as to say it appears the bombs were homemade. By contrast, the ISC report says conclusively that forensic analysis showed that the explosions were caused by homemade organic peroxide-based devices. But according to this report, it is only almost certain that the devices were intentionally detonated in suicide attacks. The three carriages in which bombs are said to have gone off have all been scrapped. Several others also damaged in the explosions were sent all the way to Hungary to be repaired. At the trial of three men accused but ultimately cleared of helping the alleged July 7th bombers, the prosecution claimed the bombs were made of HMTD and black pepper. But no trace of pepper was found at the four explosion sites, and traces of HMTD only found at three of them. In April 2009, the BBC show Newsnight reported yet another bomb recipe. These are photographs of the bomb factory in Leeds, where the devices were made from concentrated hydrogen peroxide and powdered masala spice. It has to be said, it was always a case built on circumstantial evidence. That said, it was a very, very thorough investigation. I think somehow the family now needs to draw a line underneath this. In the absence of physical evidence, and with the government failing to release details of the forensic investigation, we are left with considerably diverging eyewitness accounts and mainstream media coverage. Witnesses from all three locations described feelings of electrocution and an explosion that sounded like a power surge. Bruce Late's dance partner, Crystal Main, gave an interview to The Independent where she said it felt like she was being electrocuted and thousands of volts were going through her. It sounded like a power generator switching on, you know, that kind of type of sound, but a million times more powerful. A passenger on the Piccadilly line, Richard South, said that the explosion didn't sound like a bomb, more a loud power surge. And a witness called Ian, interviewed by the BBC, described a sharp feeling of electrocution. It was just like, boom, and I could feel like as if I'm ele being electrocuted, you know, and I shook like... Up and down the chair I was. At Edgware Road, Jeff Porter was driving a train headed in the opposite direction to the one supposedly bombed by Mohammed Khan. And as it was almost past me, the, the driver's cab must have been just passing mine. I saw a bright yellow light on the on the train on the other side. I, on the underground, when you see a bright a bright light, your first thought is something to do with electricity. But normally, uh, a 630 volt arc will be like a, a whitish blue light and start from the track. But this was a yellow light that was up. On the, on the level of the train, and it was, you know, I was just totally perplexed, you know, thinking, what on earth has happened? And both of the Benton sisters described being electrocuted. And we're sitting there, and then the next second, um, just everything was black. Um, I felt like I was being electrocuted, um, and I felt like I was on fire. I thought that we had derailed and hit a power line, because I thought we were being electrocuted. It's kind of what it felt like. Everything was black, and... Um, it, yeah, we felt like we were being electrocuted. The majority of witnesses who saw the tube train explosions describe a flash of light, fireballs, and large amounts of black smoke. 
you saw, I saw a very bright light, you sort of orangey yellow light, and what appeared to be silver sort of lines across, which was the glass flying through the air. And next thing I know, there's a, loud, a large flash of light. Uh, felt a burning sensation on my hands, put my hands up to my face. And then it was just smoke everywhere in the tunnel. We were trying to close the doors because it was just smoke, you couldn't breathe. There was a huge explosion, a flash of flame down the side of the, the train. It stopped very quickly, the people all over the show, and it very quickly filled up with grit and smoke and rubbish. But these are not the features of homemade organic peroxide based explosives. When they are ignited, both HMTD and TATP can burn, giving off flames and smoke. But when they are detonated, both produce no flame and a small amount of white smoke. Detonating organic peroxide causes an entropic explosion, which doesn't produce any heat. Like that in a car's airbag, it is the rapid expansion of a substance in a solid state into a gas state of much larger volume. The smoke and fire described by witnesses is much more in keeping with a plastic explosive like C4, or RDX as used in the Madrid train bombings. But the bombs supposedly used on 7-7 were not just peroxide, but peroxide mixed with another substance. In this respect, they are similar to those used by the 21-7 alleged bombers, and the ones the so-called liquid bomb plotters were accused of planning to make. In the trials of both cases, the prosecution showed video to the jury depicting the detonation of devices built by government scientists. These videos suggest that an explosive made of peroxide mixed with other substances can produce a flash, flame, combustion and black smoke as does an experiment conducted for the BBC's Panorama series. But without forensic evidence showing that these sorts of devices were used on 7-7, these experiments don't show anything conclusive about what happened. Without the disclosure of further evidence, we cannot be sure what caused the explosions on July 7th, and therefore who was responsible. At 9.47, around an hour after the first tube train blast, an explosion tore through an iconic London bus in Tavistock Square. It wasn't until about an hour after the bus explosion that the story of power surges was replaced by the conclusion that London had suffered a terrorist attack. Officials started spreading the line that the events bore the hallmarks of Al-Qaeda. You heard it in the news earlier on as well, the statement that's come from the BBC's own security correspondent, Frank Gardner. Uh, now, he has been talking to sources that he is in close contact with, um, who in turn monitor al-Qaeda and monitor their movements. And they have told the BBC that they believe today's explosions in here, in London, are almost certainly the work of al-Qaeda. We haven't got this confirmed from any al-Qaeda source. This is from our own BBC correspondents who work closely in this field. What they're saying is, effectively, it's got all the hallmarks of an Al-Qaeda-planned attack. After Jack Straw used the same phrase that evening, it became something of a mantra for officials and media commentators. Tonight, the British government says the attacks bear the hallmarks of Al-Qaeda. The government said tonight this had all the hallmarks of an Al-Qaeda attack. Has the hallmarks. Has the hallmarks. They say they do believe that it bore all the hallmarks of an Al-Qaeda attack. 
but the previous attacks attributed to Al-Qaeda hit military or commercial targets. The U.S. embassies in East Africa, the USS Cole, the Pentagon, and the World Trade Center are different sorts of targets to the London public transport system. As a terrorist strategy, attacking trains and a bus has much more in keeping with Operation Gladio than it does with Al-Qaeda. Officials went to great lengths to blame Islamic terrorists before anyone had an idea what had happened. The bus explosion was critical in many ways to selling this story to the public. But if anything, we know even less about what happened on the bus than what happened on the underground. And so the problems and questions are even harder to resolve. The police and home office say that Hasib Hussain was responsible for the explosion on the number 30 bus. But why he caught the bus and how it came to be diverted remain unexplained. According to the Home Office, Hussein left King's Cross without catching a tube train. There is no obvious reason or explanation for this. He then paid a visit to McDonald's, though the released CCTV doesn't show this, and McDonald's would be a strange choice for breakfast for an Islamic fundamentalist on a suicide mission. After McDonald's, he paid a visit to a WH Smith's where he may or may not have bought a battery. The Home Office then has him heading away from King's Cross and towards Euston, possibly catching the number 91 bus to the stop outside Euston Station. However, the number 30's normal route from Euston takes it back the same way, so it makes no sense for Hussein to have travelled up to Euston to catch it. Hussein could not have known that the number 30 bus would be diverted, though how and when this happened is not at all clear. It may have done a U-turn in the bus stop, intending to pick up its normal route down Euston Road, and then got diverted at the junction, possibly by police. Alternatively, the bus company may have diverted it due to the problems at King's Cross, and told the driver to turn right coming out of the bus stop. Most likely, the bus tried to take its normal route down Euston Road, and was then diverted back into Tavistock Square, probably by police. Adding to the confusion, the Telegraph reported that the bus was on its way to Marble Arch, from Hackney Wick. But Hackney Wick is the destination shown on pictures of the bus, putting it on the opposite leg of the number 30's route. The bus explosion was also key in convincing the public that suicide bombers were to blame for what had happened. What is the key evidence that is linking these four individuals to what happened last week in London? Well, I think it's the forensics at the uh, scene. Uh, you know, they discovered body parts, they discovered identification. Just two days after 7-7, the Times ran an article describing the telltale signs of suicide bombings. The article pointed out how Israeli investigations often found that the explosion decapitated the bomber's body. When Hasib Hussein's decapitated body was found a few days later, the Times ran a new article saying that this was evidence that he was a suicide bomber. Over the following days, The Guardian and other newspapers ran similar stories, and suicide bombings became part of the official account. The problem with this is that suicide bombers can be decapitated because they strap explosives to their chest and abdomen. Whereas Hussein's bomb was supposedly in a rucksack on the floor, much more likely to blow off his legs than his head. Images of and witnesses to the bus explosion are rare, but what they do have to tell us only poses further questions. The back of the top deck of the bus was completely destroyed and the roof was ripped off but pictures taken just after the explosion show passengers on the top deck largely unharmed. I don't remember anything. 
of the blast at all. Um, I woke up with my head on my knees and realised there was something in my mouth, which was my tooth, um, and I spat that out. In front of us almost looked normal. People's seats were still intact, people were standing up. When we turned and looked behind us, the bus just dropped away behind us. There were literally three inches of floor before it, it bent down. The pictures and video from Tavistock Square don't show anything like the 124 dead and injured people the government says were there. While there's no question that some people were killed and injured, it is possible that victims from other locations were attributed to the site of the bus explosion. Likewise, accounts conflict as to the number of people on the bus before it exploded. An interview in the New York Times said that there were around 15 to 20 people on board. A witness writing on the BBC website said the bus was full but not cramped with people. An interview in the Times said that after a lot of people got off, a tall black man was the only person left standing on the bottom deck. And the Metropolitan Police claimed that there were around 80 people on the bus. A witness from the top deck of the bus interviewed by the Daily Mail said that she saw police putting up tape to block off the street before the explosion happened. Louis Fernandez was the first cameraman on scene in Tavistock Square that morning. As have others, he expressed disbelief at what he saw. And I think at the time I didn't believe what was going on. It was either I was waiting to see the, the film crews and the, the big HMI lights and, and, you know, something like that, that would show to me that this is a film and, you know, they've closed off the street. But there wasn't. There was people running, there was panic. Um, you could see people's faces were either in shock or or they were like me, you know, not believing it. I think especially the images of the, the guy in the suit um, lying on the floor. It's a perfect white shirt and there wasn't a spot of blood on his shirt whatsoever. But the injuries he had, you'd think, you know, it just, it was as if he'd been placed there. Perhaps inspired by these accounts, Daniel Oberchaiki is a blogger and activist who has authored a book and given public presentations. He rose to notoriety appearing on the Alex Jones radio show, and given the lack of witnesses from Tavistock Square, his voice is heard loudly and widely. Daniel says that he was on the bottom deck of the bus when the explosion happened, and that he saw several things that made him think the explosion was a staged event and he claims MI5 were the real culprits. He identified this man as being in Tavistock Square just after the explosion happened, and speculated that he was an actor or agent there to help stage the event. However, the pictures showing a bandaged man being helped away by two men in blue shirts with rucksacks put him near to Russell Square tube station, casting doubt on Daniel's story. Indeed, nothing in Daniel's story is corroborated by photographic evidence or other eyewitnesses from Tavistock Square, leading some to suggest that he may be a disinformation agent, or at least not a very reliable witness. Further suspicions were raised by the account of a witness on a bus in front of the number 30. Looking back from the top deck, they noticed someone pulling something out of the smoking wreckage. There is a suggestion that evidence was tampered with. Then there are the reports of a controlled explosion on the bus, something police deny. This is still clearly an evolving incident. The police now pushing us back, asking us to move further away from the bus. We did hear another bang just a few moments ago. We don't know whether it was another bomb. This is clearly still an evolving situation. One witness who says that there was a controlled explosion on the bus was Rishmal Marie Oates Whitehead. 
The New Zealand Herald reported on her story that she assisted two firemen in cutting injured people out of the wreckage. The article goes on to describe a controlled explosion on a suspect package. The story was also reported by The Telegraph. Marie died less than two weeks after 7-7, in questionable circumstances. But in their reporting on this, both the Herald and the Telegraph focused on the angle that there were questions as to whether she was a real doctor. Despite these questions, an NHS Direct website listed her as an epidemiologist. And she was interviewed as a medical specialist for this book about pregnancy. Reports in The Observer and CBC News support Marie's account of a controlled explosion on the bus as does an account from a doctor on the scene published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and a television news report from the BBC. A controlled explosion early this afternoon showed the police operation is only just beginning. Despite these issues, the police and home office version is stated confidently. The CCTV on the bus was reportedly not working, and so there are no images of her sleeper sane on the bus, let alone blowing himself up. However, the police and home office are in no doubt that he was responsible, even citing a witness saying that he was fiddling with the top of his rucksack just before the explosion. That witness was Richard Jones, who was widely interviewed after 7-7. His account of seeing Hasiba saying on the bottom deck of the bus was another critical element in establishing the story of suicide bombers. But Jones is a profoundly unreliable witness. He has given two distinct descriptions of what the man he saw was wearing, and neither of them fit the CCTV images of Hasiba saying that morning. Different interviews also have Jones contradicting himself on whether or not he saw Hussein's face and was therefore in a position to identify him. That the Home Office used the account of such an unreliable witness only shows how desperate they were to seize on any detail that supported their desired version of events, and only fuels the suspicion that all is not right with the official version of what happened on the number 30 bus. On the afternoon and evening of July 7th, former Metropolitan Police Officer turned management consultant Peter Power gave interviews to BBC Radio and ITV News. In these interviews he outlined how his company, Visor Consultants, had been running a terrorism training exercise at 9 o'clock on the morning of 7-7. The exercise featured simultaneous explosions at underground stations, the same stations that had been affected that morning. So we had to suddenly switch an exercise from fictional to real. Several days later, he essentially repeated the same story in an interview on Canadian television. Our scenario was very similar, it wasn't totally identical, but it was based on bombs going off to the time, the locations, all this sort of stuff. Some skeptics of the official account of July 7th have suggested that there may be a connection between the terrorism training exercise and the real events that unfolded on the ground. Power has denied this several times, culminating in his appearance on the BBC show Conspiracy Files. He explained that he was running a tabletop exercise for a small number of people, employees of a London-based firm, Reed Elsevier. According to Power and the BBC, the exercise didn't involve anyone actually on the streets of London. However, the truthfulness of this account is in doubt because of the absence of much relevant information. Reed Elsevier are presented as a publishing firm, but the BBC overlooked their long-standing and much protested role in organising arms fairs. Peter Power is presented as a crisis, crisis management, management consultant. His history as a Metropolitan Police Officer is glossed over. 
and no mention is made of his frequent appearances on mainstream news as an all-purpose crisis and terrorism pundit. Also not mentioned was his appearance on a 2004 BBC Panorama show, London Under Attack. He was on a panel of experts discussing how London would respond to a terrorist attack. The scenario created for the Panorama programme was strikingly similar to what actually happened on July 7th. There were three explosions on the London Underground before 9 o'clock. This was followed later in the morning by an explosion on a large road-based vehicle, albeit a chlorine tanker and not a bus. While the Panorama programme did provide a more detailed version of Peter Power's background and experience, it did not include any mention of the years he spent working for Dorset Police, as detailed by the July 7th Truth Campaign. Despite Peter Power's assertions that it was just a coincidence, But it is a coincidence. It's a coincidence. Even he was struck by how strange it was. Precisely at the railway stations that happened this morning, so I still have the hairs on the back of my legs standing upright. And it, I've still got the... How extraordinary today must feel for you as as it unfolds. Furthermore, if the exercise was just a PowerPoint presentation for a small group of people, then why was Peter Power up until 2 o'clock in the morning the night before? Uh, Almost precisely. I was up until 2 o'clock this morning because it's our job, my own company. Also, in both interviews on the 7th, Peter Power spoke of simultaneous explosions. Based on simultaneous bombs going off precisely at the railway stations that happened this morning. We based our scenario on the simultaneous attacks on the underground and mainline station. Yet it wasn't until two days later that officials said the tube explosions were almost simultaneous. In the absence of a consistent version of events, people will continue to pose questions about the similarities between Peter Power's training exercise, the scenario developed for the Panorama program on which he appeared, and the official version of what happened on the morning of July 7th. Perhaps the most discussed question about 7-7 is that of intelligence failures. Though we were initially told that the alleged bombers were clean skins, unknown to the security services, it has since emerged that they not only knew who they were, but that they should be investigated. The 7-7 bombings were, it was suggested, the work of clean skins, angry young men previously unknown to the security services. But behind those claims lay an entirely different reality. Mohammed Sadiq Khan had appeared on MI5's radar not once, but several times, videoed, bugged and followed more than a year before he wrought carnage in London. So was it a case of gaps in intelligence or an intelligence failure? In 2009, the Intelligence and Security Committee, whose job it is to oversee MI5's activities, issued their second report, titled, Could 7-7 Have Been Prevented? The report tells a relatively detailed story of what MI5 were up to in the years and months leading up to 7-7. Upon its release, it was heralded as revealing an unprecedented amount of information about how MI5 really works. But in reality, it is mostly irrelevant statistics, excuses, and redactions. The ISC, on the basis of the evidence that MI5 showed them, explained that the security service were essentially too busy and under-resourced to follow up on every lead and person of interest, and so they missed the alleged bombers despite coming across them several times. As with the official version of events on the day of 7-7, there are many problems with this story. Firstly, many of the cases MI5 were investigating in the years prior to 7-7 involved people who were too incompetent to pose any serious national security risk, or were just plain innocent. One example was the Ricin plot. In January 2003, 
Over a dozen people were arrested in London, Manchester and Bournemouth in connection with a plot to use the poison ricin in a terrorist attack in Britain. The only person convicted was an Algerian man, Kamal Borgas, who they'd arrested completely by accident. He had come to Britain a few years earlier and applied for asylum but was unsuccessful. He then lived in Britain illegally until he was arrested in 2003. During his arrest, he stabbed a police officer who later died, and Borgas was convicted of the officer's murder, and subsequently of conspiracy to cause a public nuisance using ricin. He was never convicted of any crime under terrorism legislation. In part, this is because he never actually made any ricin, and his plan was to smear it on the door handles of cars in the Holloway Road area of London. This method probably would have made people sick, but wouldn't have killed anyone, and certainly wasn't a threat to national security. That didn't stop then US Secretary of State Colin Powell from grandstanding at the UN, using the Borgas case to bolster the argument for war in Iraq. When our coalition ousted the Taliban, the Zakawi network helped establish another poison and explosive training center camp, and this camp is located in northeastern Iraq. You see a picture of this camp. The network is teaching its operatives how to produce ricin and other poisons. Zakawi and his network have plotted terrorist actions against countries including France, Britain, Spain, Italy, Germany, and Russia. There isn't a country that I go to where when they talk about terrorism, they'll say, you remember what happened in the UK? And they prevented it. What would have happened if the UK hadn't prevented it? I don't think it is, it is the sounding of false alarms. I think the alarm is real and it's continuing to ring. But none of this was true. There was no London Al-Qaeda poison cell, and Kamil Borgas had nothing to do with Abu Musab al-Zakawi. I wouldn't go to war based on that. That's what I told myself. I would not go to war based on that. And I thought it, it was a total failure. Um, I thought I had failed because I was the person who put it together, responsible for putting it together. Then later, a couple of days later, three days later or so, when I'd had some sleep and I could think about it, um, I wondered why the reaction seemed to be fairly positive. We hadn't persuaded that many people who were adamantly opposed, but we had made some impact, uh, particularly on the American people. And I think we made a little impact on the international community, too, probably in the U.K. in particular. Um, so, yes, I, I have trouble sometimes sleeping at night thinking about my participation in it. Then came Duran Barat and the so-called financial buildings plot. Barat was arrested in August 2004, though an anonymous source told The Guardian that at that time there was virtually no evidence against him. This was later repeated by Deputy Assistant Police Commissioner Peter Clark. There's a wealth of evidence that, uh, that uh, Barat was a very important figure within Al-Qaeda. And what we believe is that early in 2004, he presented his plans to Al-Qaeda leadership uh, with the intention of getting the permission and the resources to mount attacks in the United Kingdom. Barat was arrested in August 2004 uh, when we reached the stage where we felt we couldn't be sure that we could protect the public from what he wanted to do. So when we arrested, we had a wealth of intelligence, but we didn't have a huge amount of admissible evidence. Thirteen others were also arrested, though six were released without charge. Despite the lack of evidence, Duran Barat pleaded guilty in 2006, and his seven co-accused pleaded guilty the following year. 
The details of the plot reveal a similar incompetence to Borgas's writing on card or handle scheme. One idea was to use stretch limousines, hardly the most inconspicuous of vehicles, and fill them with gas cylinders, which are not effective explosives, and detonate them in underground car parks. Barot also apparently intended to attack financial buildings in the United States, including the headquarters of the World Bank and the New York Stock Exchange. As evidence in his trial, the prosecution showed a video that he'd shot years earlier that they say was a surveillance tape. But the video looks just like that shot by a tourist, and only shows the outside of the buildings, and nothing to do with their security. He also intended to make a dirty bomb out of the radioactive material in 10,000 smoke alarms. Though the media presented this as an apocalyptic plot by a devilish Islamist, in reality the device would have been very bulky, and not particularly harmful. In all likelihood, no one would have been killed even if Barot had been able to build the device and detonate it. The original arrests came in response to the Bush administration leaking the name of Mohammed Naim Noor Khan. He was reported to be Al-Qaeda's computer expert, and was captured in Pakistan in July 2004. He was turned almost immediately, and became a double agent, working for both the ISI and the CIA in a sting operation using emails. His laptop contained details of Duren Barat's farcical financial building's attack plan, and Khan admitted he was involved in the plot. As a result, the Bush administration leaked Khan's name to the press, and it was published by the New York Times. The administration was facing an election in the midst of increasing criticism over the Iraq war, and so they issued an orange alert warning, creating another media storm about an imminent terrorist attack. Reports indicate that Al-Qaeda is targeting Citigroup buildings and the New York Stock Exchange in New York. But we must understand that the kind of information available to us today is the result of the President's leadership in the war against terror. They neglected to mention that the information was several years old, and that the attack plan was practically ludicrous. More importantly, they chose to create false hype about the threat from terrorism over and above using Khan as an intelligence asset. Leaking his name also meant that the British authorities had to react quickly, arresting Duran Barat and other people that Khan had associated with, in case they read in a newspaper that he was now an informant. Though Barat is now serving a 30-year prison sentence, Khan has immunity from prosecution, and was released, a free man, in 2007, after Barat and his accomplices had been sentenced. The ISC discussed none of this. The Borgas case in the Iraq War Intelligence, and what they imply about our security policy, are not mentioned. The Barat case was presented as a genuine threat, and the role of the leaking of Mohammed Naim Noor Khan's identity was not investigated by the ISC. There are almost identical problems with what the ISC said about Operation Crevice, the investigation into the fertilizer bomb plot, during which MI5 had surveillance of both Mohammed Sadiq Khan and Shazad Tanweer. In March 2004, only weeks after the Madrid train bombings, police raids resulted in the arrest of six men suspected of plotting a fertilizer bomb attack in Britain. Captain asked them, what, what is the reason that you're here? And one of the forensics guy, he said, watch, TV, watch the TV and you'll know. Two more men were arrested, one in Pakistan who was extradited to Britain to stand trial, and another in Canada who stood trial there. Of the seven that went on trial in Britain, five were found guilty and two were acquitted, in a case held up as a major success in the war on terror. The group had been under MI5 surveillance for a long time, 
to the extent that their lockup had a security camera in it, and police had replaced the fertilizer they were storing there with an inert compound. MI5 had also bugged conversations and tapped phones. However, the group had no apparent means of building the bomb or delivering it to the suggested target locations, which included the Ministry of Sound nightclub. The alleged mastermind of the plot was yet another Mohammed Khan, Mohammed Koyum Khan, known in court and to the plotters as Q. A part-time taxi driver, Q was said to be a facilitator who arranged funding and equipment for the group. Q was also said to be instrumental in sending Mohammed Sadiq Khan, the alleged ringleader of the 7-7 plot, to Pakistan for terrorism training in 2003. But Q was never arrested, and after the trial was reported still living freely in the UK, though nothing has been heard of him since. Who was or is Q? There are a lot of people connected to this investigation. Some of them I know their identities, some of them I don't. Um, but you know who Q is? I know who Q is, but I'm not going to discuss uh, who he is or what he is or what he does uh, during this interview. Why was Q never arrested? Decisions are made during the course of investigation based upon the evidence that's available. And uh, the decision as to who should be arrested is based entirely uh, upon what evidence is available at the time. Was Q not arrested possibly because he was working for you or MI5? I'm not prepared to comment on, on, on any speculation like that. Pure speculation. Where is Q now? I said I'm not prepared to talk about Q. The prosecution's key witness at the fertilizer plot trial was another curious figure called Mohammed Junaid Babar. He was born in Pakistan but moved to the United States when he was very young and grew up in Queens, New York. There he joined the American chapter of the group Al Muhajirun. Babar was in New York on 9-11, and his mother worked on and escaped from the ninth floor of the World Trade Center. He was apparently so inspired by the attacks that he left the US for Pakistan, pledging to fight alongside the Taliban. When the American troops enter, we will kill them in Afghanistan. There is no negotiation with the Americans, for they're coming in with the mindset to kill my Muslim brothers and sisters. I will do the same on the front line. I will kill every American that I see in Afghanistan. And while I'm in Pakistan, if I see them in Pakistan, I'll kill every American soldier I can in Pakistan. He didn't return to the U.S. until early 2004 and was arrested days later. He was turned by the FBI very quickly, though it is widely reported that he'd been under observation for several years. He admitted to setting up a training camp in Pakistan and to supplying money and equipment to Al-Qaeda. He became the Al-Qaeda Supergrass and was a key witness at both fertilizer bomb plot trials, as well as at the trial of three men accused of helping the alleged 7-7 bombers, massively reducing his own sentence. Armed police halted London's rush hour traffic to get the witness to court. The high security operation took him through Trafalgar Square on the way to the Old Bailey. The witness, who's pleaded guilty in the United States to plotting to bomb Britain, was here to testify against the men the prosecution say were his accomplices. Now then, a supergrass linked to Al-Qaeda has told the old Bailey that he plotted to kill a foreign leader. With that, and more of the day's news, here's Bridget. 
Mohamed Baba, a key prosecution witness in the terrorism trial, has admitted he was involved in two plots to kill the Pakistani president, General Musharraf, in 2003. But he told the court he doesn't face prosecution for the conspiracies as part of a plea bargaining deal with the Americans, where he promised to testify in this case. Seven men deny plotting a bomb attack in the UK. A lawyer for the defence accused Mr. Baba of creating elaborate lies to make himself a valuable witness. Defending Mohammed Shakil, Joel Benathan QC reminded the jury that Mr. Baba hoped to gain his freedom in return for cooperating with the authorities. He put it to him, you're giving evidence because you'd like to be back with your family as soon as possible. Yes, replied Mr. Baba. The supposed ringleader of the plot, Omar Khayyam, also helped the prosecution. He stopped testifying partway through the trial and refused to answer any more questions, knowing this would be viewed with suspicion by the jury. Kayan said he wouldn't answer any more questions because his family in Pakistan had been contacted by the Pakistani intelligence service over the evidence he'd already given. In that previous evidence, Kayan had accused the Pakistani intelligence service of running the guerrilla training camp he had attended in Kashmir. He said, I think they are worried I might reveal more about them. So right now, as much as I want to clarify matters, the priority for me has to be the safety of my family. So I am going to stop. The judge warned Kayan that if he refused to answer questions without a good reason, the jury could draw inferences from it. Largely as a result of Kayan's refusal to testify, and Babar's highly incriminating testimony, Kayam and four others were convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment. Both Kayam and Babar are crucial to the possible 7-7 intelligence failure, as both had met Mohammed Sadiq Khan. All three had attended a Pakistani training camp in 2003, according to Babar's later interrogation by security services. While in the FBI's custody in 2004, Babar was shown pictures of Mohammed Sadiq Khan, then unidentified by MI5, but failed to recognize him from the poor quality images. However, other reports say that he did recognize Khan and told the FBI about him. MI5 also had surveillance of Mohammed Sadiq Khan and Shahzad Tanweer meeting Omar Khayyam in Britain. The pictures and footage from this surveillance were kept from the ISC during their original investigation in 2006 and only became public knowledge after the fertilizer bomb plot trial. After a meeting between the three, MI5 followed Khan and Tanweer and got Khan's home address. MI5 even bugged conversations between the three of them. Most of these conversations revolved around the topics of financial fraud and going overseas, possibly to fight there. However, in one transcript published by the BBC and dramatized in an episode of Panorama, Mohammed Sadiq Khan and Omar Khayyam discussed terrorism. So are you really a terrorist? They're working with us. You're serious? You, you are basically? I'm not a terrorist, but they're working through us. Who are? There's no one higher than you. Kayam denied being a terrorist and said they work through us, though he doesn't specify who the they are. MI5, and consequently the ISC, presented a story of Khan and Tanweer appearing on the edges of another investigation and due to budgetary and personnel limits, they did not follow them up in time. 
But MI5 says of all the suspects on the edge of the fertilizer plot, Khan and Tanweer represent less than 0.1% of all the links on record in relation to the fertilizer plot investigation. But many of the targets they did follow were essentially a waste of time, posing no threat to the British public or to national security. A lot of time and effort was clearly spent on supporting US-led misinformation campaigns designed to shore up support for the Iraq war. Perhaps most importantly, the only other people in this story who were free from the aggressive paranoia of the security services were Mohammed Junaid Barbar, Mohammed Naeem Noor Khan and Q, all of which were probable or definite informants. We have sent information to Great Britain before the terrorist attacks in Britain, um, but unfortunately no action was taken, and uh, it may have been able to maybe avert uh, the tragedy. The ISC's report also alludes to a warning sent to MI5 from Saudi intelligence. Though it has redacted the entire section on what the Saudi warning contained, According to The Guardian, the intelligence said that a group of four men were going to attack the London public transport system in the first six months of 2005. The ISC said that the warning was materially different from what happened on 7-7 and therefore not relevant, and that they cannot comment on the accuracy of The Guardian's reporting without revealing the details of the original intelligence. But this is a nonsense. If the warning and The Guardian's reporting of it are substantially different, then it would be possible to say so without revealing the details of the original intelligence. The only conclusion from this is that The Guardian's reporting was at least similar to the original Saudi warning. Also, MI5 could have said that the warning was too vague, and that lacking any further information they couldn't do anything about it. By having the ISC say that they were right to do nothing, they go against their own narrative of not having enough time and resources. Either MI5 did have enough coverage of its targets, and was therefore in a position to assess the importance of the Saudi warning, or it didn't. The report flat out contradicts itself on the subject of another possible double agent, Haroun Rashid Aswat. He was widely reported in the weeks after 7-7 to be the mastermind behind the bombings. Papers reported that he'd been in telephone contact with the four alleged bombers, that he'd left the UK just before the attacks happened, and that he was wanted by authorities in the US for attempting to set up a terrorist training school in Oregon. On July 29th, former Department of Justice prosecutor John Loftus gave an interview where he claimed that Aswat was a double agent, working for MI6. And what's really embarrassing is that you, the entire British police are out chasing him, and one wing of the British government, MI6, or the British Secret Service, right. has been hiding him. And this has been a real source of contention between CIA, Hold on, John. Justice Department, and Britain. MI6 has been hiding him. Are you saying that he has been working for them? What? So he's a double agent, or what? He's a double agent. He's yeah, working for the, so he's working for the Brits to try to give them information about Al-Qaeda, but in reality, he's still an Al-Qaeda operative. But there is no physical evidence showing Aswat's connection either to 7-7 or to MI6. Aswat was arrested several days before the Loftus interview in Zambia, though another man with a similar name was arrested in Pakistan. The original Aswat was extradited back to Britain, but authorities here showed no interest in interrogating or prosecuting him. The US issued a warrant for his arrest, and in November 2006 a judge approved his extradition to the United States. 
However, there is no report of him actually being sent to the US, and where he is now is unclear. The ISC's report summed up this story in a simple contradiction, first saying that MI5 found no evidence that Aswat had anything to do with 7-7, and then saying that they found some evidence of his involvement that was subsequently discounted. In dealing with the question of whether Aswat was involved with MI6, an entire paragraph is redacted, and the ISC concluded that they had seen no evidence that he was protected by Western intelligence services. Whether they looked for that evidence is not made clear. Among the things not mentioned in the ISC's report are the suggestions that the four men were either not responsible for what happened on 7-7, or were somehow duped into playing the roles that they did. They bought return tickets for the train from Luton. There are no reports of them praying or shouting Allah Akbar before the explosions happened, and the evidence connecting them with the scenes is dubious. Sadiq Khan's property and ID were found at three different blast locations. At the trial of the three alleged 7-7 helpers, the prosecution noted that the items were found considerable distances from the epicenters of the blasts, which they said indicated that the bombers had dropped them there on purpose to make sure of being identified. But the Piccadilly Line train was packed full of people, making it impossible for Jermaine Lindsay to have moved about so much without attracting attention to himself. Also, the ID bearing Lindsay's photograph has a different name on it. And when Shazad Tanweer's body was returned to his family for burial, they commented that it was relatively intact, suggesting that he wasn't at the centre of the explosion. Completely denied by the ISC is the possible role of Al-Muhajirun, the mainly British-based services office for Mujahideen. Set up by Anjum Chowdhury and Omar Bakri, it was very useful in the 1990s as it recruited and prepared young men to fight in the West's dirty wars in the Balkans. Though Omar Bakri made numerous controversial statements, including advocating the assassination of Prime Minister John Major, the security services did nothing to stop Al-Muhajirun. Be careful, beware, be aware, there is homosexual everywhere. <laughs> Take one please, be careful from homosexuality. It's not good for you, Tommy. It's good this it seems strange to me that you're going to um, organise collections for Hamas and so on in that big Coca-Cola bottle. Uh -huh, very good, you know. What would you do with the Spice Girls? Uh, they must be arrested immediately. They will never be existing in the Islamic State Spice Girls. The members of the Fertiliser Plot Group, along with Harun Aswat and Junaid Babar, as well as at least two of the alleged 7-7 bombers, were all reported to be members of this group. In 2004, Omar Bakri gave an interview where he said that many British-based militants were being monitored and manipulated by MI5. And in 2005, he gave another interview where he said that he was an MI5 informant. Shortly after 7-7, he fled the UK amid rumours he was going to be charged with treason. I will leave voluntarily. If the British government said, we don't want you here, I will leave. Shortly after, he was banned from returning to British soil, which conveniently means he cannot be extradited here to face a trial of any kind. In 2008, the Sun newspaper printed an article saying that Omar Bakri's daughter Yasmin was a pole dancer and stripper, and that Bakri himself had paid for her breast implants. Not long afterwards, Yasmin gave an interview to the Daily Mail denying the allegations, and portraying her father as very different to the firebrand preacher the media usually describes. 
More recently, having fled to Lebanon, Bakri was accused of setting up a local Al-Qaeda faction, and a warrant issued in Lebanon for his arrest. This did not stop him from phoning up Sky News to complain about being banned from an internet chat room. I think it's said that the government uses scare tactics against the Muslim community for years after 9-11, isn't that now? In this context, we must ask, quite seriously, was 7-7 an intelligence failure, or intelligence fixed to the policy? If the four alleged bombers were responsible, then were they allowed to carry out the attacks? Were they helped to carry them out? Were they set up as patsies? Were they false flag operatives, either knowingly or otherwise? Were the government and mainstream media unwilling to even consider these questions, let alone force the issue and get proper answers? We may never know. We do not know what happened on July 7th, 2005, or who was responsible. While it is possible that the four alleged bombers were responsible, the case against them is circumstantial, and the evidence against them is contradictory and far from reliable. On the fifth anniversary of 7-7, flowers were laid in memory and tribute at King's Cross tube station, inside a metal security container. The date passed with the barest of official acknowledgement and with no sign of a new investigation. The leaders of both parties in the newly formed coalition supported an independent inquiry when they were in opposition, but have said nothing about it since the election. I think Tony Blair has made a mistake, frankly, in ruling this out of hand. In the autumn of 2010, the inquests into the 7-7 deaths will begin, though the inquests into the deaths of the four alleged bombers will be heard separately. Two of the alleged bombers' families have been denied legal aid, and any questions that they have about how their loved ones died will have to be posed through the coroner. The initial hearings suggest that the inquest process will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. In all likelihood, the guilt and culpability of the four alleged bombers will be assumed from the start, but this will be presented as the rational conclusion of an unbiased investigation. However, there are indications that the inquests will provide some new information, and that they will discuss some of the issues raised in this film and elsewhere. The coroner, Lady Justice Hallett, determined that the question of MI5 and police failings will be examined, and she admitted that she'd been on the internet to read about conspiracy theories. That said, there will be no jury, and the coroner will likely be under tremendous pressure to deliver the desired result. Also, an inquest is not a full inquiry, with subpoena powers and independence from the institutions that should be investigated. Any government-commissioned inquiry will take place under the odious and demagogic Inquiries Act, passed exactly one month before 7-7. Therefore, it is the responsibility of ordinary citizens, individually and in groups, to press for further disclosure of evidence and information about what happened and why. Given the long history of double dealings, double agents, official deceptions, covert operations, and propaganda, and given the examples of governments putting the political expediency of the war on terror ahead of the lives of their own citizens, it remains a distinct possibility that 7-7 was one in a long line of such events.
the 7-7 bombings, the then Home Secretary told us the attack came out of the blue. We now know that was not true. They were clocked, recorded and followed. has to be an inquiry. The information that's in the public domain now is something that's up at the iceberg. After the Cold War, my argument is that these operations did not end. On the contrary, they escalated. This network, amorphous network, this network term Al-Qaeda, has functioned seamlessly as a mercenary proxy force. Justice Hallett wants to hear what we have to say and invites us to come and speak. It would be our chance to finally tell our story and get this put to rest. Now that's that's the only reason that I'm involved here because I, I all I'd like to do is to go along and tell her what I found at Oldgate that day uh, and maybe understand a little bit more about what went on. Essentially, Western state sponsorship, indirectly and directly, of Al-Qaeda as a destabilising force. Meanwhile, Innocent citizens are being killed. Yet the policy has not shifted. There's a term, in, there's a legal term, it's a willful and reckless indifference. You could sue those bastards. And hopefully someone will. <laughs>